Podcastle, number 12, for June 17th, 2008. Baron's Dance by Peter Beagle. Welcome back to Podcastle. I'm Summer Brooks, and this week it is my pleasure to introduce you to Baron's Dance by Peter S. Beagle. Peter is one of the foremost fantasy writers around, and thankfully for us, we have over 40 years of his work in short stories, novels, and screenplays to enjoy. He's best known for the novel The Last Unicorn and the animated film that was adapted from it. The sequel novelette Two Hearts won both the Hugo and the Nebula Awards in 2006. Peter also wrote the Star Trek Next Generation episode Sarek, which is a fan favorite from the third season, and he also wrote the screenplay for Ralph Bakshi's animated version of Lord of the Rings. It should also be especially noted that seeing the animated film inspired Peter Jackson to pick up and read the Tolkien books, which as we all know fascinated him and eventually drove him to create the magical and wonderful Lord of the Rings movie trilogy. For more information on Peter's career and available books, see the website at conlonpress.com. Baron's Dance can be found in the fantasy collection Wizards, Magical Tales from the Masters of Modern Fantasy. It came out in hardcover in 2007 and recently came out in trade paperback. Steve Ely is our narrator for Baron's Dance. Steve is the editor and host of Escape Pod, the world's first and biggest science fiction short story podcast, and he's also the publisher of the fine podcast you're listening to now. If you want to know more about Steve, just listen to his Escape Pod intros over at escapepod.org. Every so often, he'll talk about the story or about science fiction, but you can also find out a lot about what makes Steve tick. Parents' Dance is a story that recounts the tale of a powerful wizard whose magic is expressed through dance. The wizard, Karkaros, is known through the region of the Northern Barrens, as both charismatic and capricious. He's thought of as evil, but he just wants what he wants when he wants it, and he uses his power to get those things that he decides that he wants, until he meets a woman named Jassy, who possesses a strange power of her own. And now, to our story. Baron's Dance, by Peter S. Beagle. It is a curious thing, our companionship, when you think about it. Here we are, once again taking our customary turn together in these green, green hills of your kindly West Country. As always, I thank you for keeping an old man company, young as you are. And we talk, and ponder, and laugh, and tell our stories. And all you truly know of me, as long as you have known me, is that I come from the Northern Barrens. No, think about it before you answer. Is it not so? Think about it. Now, if you recall the old saying, strange is a tale out of the barrens. Very good. This is one, and you will have to decide in your own mind how much of it you choose to believe. I believe it all, but then I have reasons. This story begins with a wizard named Kacharos. Whatever you may have been told, most wizards are neither good nor bad. They are as they are, and they do as they do and such words have no more meaning for them than they would to a Sheknath. Only another wizard has the slightest notion of how a wizard thinks or feels. 
For myself, I cannot call to mind a single one who could be considered altogether benign. No, not even Kerasinia herself. But by the same token, there is almost no such thing as a purely evil wizard. Almost. Kacharos. One tends to think of wizards either as bearded and severe, bearded and bumblingly kindly, or bearded and dark and vaguely sinister. Kacharos was none of these things. There were broad, blond plains to his friendly face. And if his blue eyes were a bit small, they were yet as candid as they could have been. His hair was red-gold in any light, as though the sun were always behind him. When he spoke, there was a deep thrum to his voice, like the singing of a giant cicada. There was no one living in the barrens who was not afraid of Kacharos. Yes, there was. One person. But that comes later in the story. Should Kacharos wander by a farmer's cottage of an evening and ask quite politely, always politely, for the last bit of food in the house, or the last bottle of wine, or even the piglet fattening for thieves' day, the entire family would scuttle to do his bidding. That you can envisage, surely. But what would you have thought afterwards, Kacharos gone, had you then seen them all hurry out to peer at the red earth of the threshold and the sad little front garden, to see if the wizard's dusty footprints turned in such a way, fell into such a pattern as to suggest that he might have been dancing? And if they had, oh, if by chance they had, then what would you have thought to see those farmers running, the lot of them, on the instant, as fast and as far as ever they could, taking nothing, nothing, and never returning? I think you might have stared at those tracks for a while, yes? Kacharos was the only wizard I have ever known, or heard of, whose power expressed itself entirely through dance. Most people imagine wizards as working their will by way of magical gestures, incantations, even song like Amnemil or Savisu himself, whose speech from his infancy was so distorted that he could not make himself understood in any other manner. But dance... As far as I have ever determined, there was no one but Kacharos. I could be wrong. I am not nearly as learned in these matters as I may sound. Lenak, the magician of Karakosk, whom I still visit when I can, for his company and his black beer, has always been of the opinion that Kacharos had discovered a means of somehow aligning his body with the universal lines of force, thus tapping that endless power by means of movement alone. Here again, I have no opinion, this way or that, but it could be so. The Northern Barrens is a patchwork land, its rolling red desolation broken miles apart by scrapes of arable land, farmed by solitary family groups who rarely see each other. Yet somehow all stories travel, almost overnight it often seems, from the stony eastern edge I know best to the endless clay hills traversed only by a few wild wanderers who yet refuse to believe that there is no such thing as a drost mine. Even they told of Kacharos when I was yet of that country, and I am sure they still do. Stories linger for a long time in the barrens. I have heard at more than one fire, for instance, the tale of Kacharos's annihilation of an entire family and their farm for no other reason but that he disliked the taste of the well water they had eagerly offered him when he appeared at their door one evening. The story says that he summoned against them creatures such as no one had ever seen before, that the few surviving witnesses prayed never to see again and never flushed out of their dreams. 
And there was a man, a lordling's revenue collector, who refused to yield up a splendid black stallion that the wizard fancied. To be fair, Kacharos asked him twice, gently and courteously, by all accounts, before he called down lightning, lightning out of a cloudless sky, that lifted the bailiff out of the air, tracing his outline in fire, whirling him this way and that, like a dry leaf crumbling in the wind. What had spilled to the ground, when it finally grew bored with playing with him, was a handful of grey and black ashes. No more than that. I see the usual questions in your eyes. Why was Kacharos what he was? What can his dance possibly have been like? Why did a wizard of his stature remain in such a backwater as the northern barons, with so little scope for his desires? To begin with the easiest one, Kacharos was not to be found in the barons at all times. Indeed, he travelled widely, and there are accounts of appearances as far south as Bitava, and as far to the west as Granach Harbour and Leishai, on the coast itself. Yet he always, always came back to that stark wild, fled by so many from the day it was made. Sooner or later, he always returned to the barons. Now I believe the reason for this lies in the question of Kacharos's nature. Unlike some wizards, he was not an especially ambitious man. He had no vast vision of dominance, no limitless dreams of world conquest. You might say he was more like an immensely strong and cruel highwayman, riding the great red hills with power swinging at his side instead of a rapier. What he saw and wanted he took, and most likely had more pleasure in the act than from the thing itself. But exercising his power over that one family, that one poor man even, that suited him just as well as mastering a dozen kingdoms, quite restrained, in a way, when you think about it. Although I know nothing of his upbringing or his studies, the fact that he was as unequivocally evil as he was still surprises me more than it shocks me. I have always believed that magic has its own immutable nature, and in some way resists being practiced contrarywise to this use or that. But Kacharos was Kacharos, and if he was able to defy the very spirit and essence of magic, well, he paid dearly enough for it in the end. Now, much of what follows is clumsily stitched together from things that are presumed to be general knowledge, which does not mean for a minute that they are even half true, and a deal of rumored rubbish which yet might mean something to a wise listener. But what may make this tale a bit different is that I was there when Kacharos, terrible, heartless Kacharos, fell in love with the wife of the Shukri trainer. Not that you would have called it love, I am sure, nor would almost anyone who imagines that he knows what the word means. Since I never have, I can only say that Jassi Belnarek, daughter of generations of Shukri trainers and wife to another, big young Riho Belnarek, was pretty enough and good-hearted with it. But why the wizard Kacharos should have been so instantly besotted with her is more than I can tell you. But so it was. Coming from the south, you may not know very much about Shukris and Shukri folk. <laughs> well, the first thing to know is that no matter how docile and domesticated they may seem, no matter if they sleep in your bed or eat from your hand, Shukris are always wild, wild in their hearts and bones. The second thing is that when they link with human beings, 
and not all of them do, far from it. It is not merely for life, but for something rather longer and deeper. A shukri belongs to no one, never, not ever. But if you should connect with a shukri, then you belong to it, simple as that. It is less a thing of the heart, whatever shukris are, one would not call them lovable or demonstrative, than of the soul. People who have doings with shukris are usually much like their charges, swift and lean and supple, and fierce, too, until they decide to like you. If they decide otherwise, well, as a group, shukri trainers are amiable enough, but they have no real interest in anyone not of their fraternity, and they volunteer nothing. They will talk shukri as long as you like, happy to brag on this one's intelligence, that one's knack for cartwheels or somersaults. They may even pass on a hint, a nibble of their world's rich folklore, improbable herbal additions to a training diet, favorite cures for an animal down with jandak poisoning, the proper tone of voice to employ when addressing a female in season. But the link, the link, no, I doubt they speak of that even to one another. Rehel Belnarek was unusual for his trade, not lean and not swift, but big, as I have said. He moved heavily, though not without grace, and instead of distance and wariness, there was a sweetness in him which he thought unmanly and did his best to deny. But the dozen odd shukris whom he raised and tended, and taught to play games and carry messages, to tumble on a tightrope, and to dance along his entire body like a crackle of black fire, his shukris knew who he was. Blood-drinking little killers they are, never forget it. But they knew Riho Belnarek. So did Jossie Grodd, as she was called at seventeen, when she wandered from her particular fold in the Red Hills into the dusty wrinkle we knew, and came to live with Riho. There was never a choice for her, once she laid eyes on him, not merely because trade calls to family trade, but because of the sympathy between her quick, clever soul and his grave and gentle one. Marriage, when it did happen, was wholly incidental between these two. It was at a hill fair that Riho and Jassi first encountered the wizard Kacharos. Few imagine that the barons lend themselves to such things as markets, let alone fairs, but in fact there are quite a few. How else should such folks survive but by selling things to one another? Riho and Jassi and their shukris, she had brought him eight from her family, a dowry, if you like, could be found at every one of them, performing on improvised plank stages several times a day, always to larger crowds than any other entertainer, rival trainers included. Part of the attraction lay in their looks, certainly, in the contrast between the big, slow man and the slight, lithe, white-haired woman who moved like a shukri herself. Jossie was born with white hair. The legend that it turned so on her wedding day is not true. I was there. And I was there also when Riho Belnarek looked up during a performance. He was demonstrating how Shas, his very favorite shukri, could swing and leap like an acrobat from his earring to Jossie's and back, to meet the blue eyes of Kacharos. The wizard was sitting his horse in the rear of the crowd, more than half hidden in the shadow of a tree. But Riho knew that he was watching the two of them, and not any shukri, and he knew as well that the one Kacharos was studying most closely was his wife, Jossie. He did not know, not then, that Kacharos was a great wizard, but he did not need to. 
Weeho thought almost as heavily as he moved, but he saw deeper than most. And what do you suppose that Kacharos saw, or felt, or thought, at that first sight of Jossie Belnarek? I wonder it still, though I doubt greatly, wicked wise as he was, whether Kacharos ever spent much time finding exact words for his feelings. At that moment he simply wanted her, and he called her to him, that being at once the most direct means of taking possession and announcing it to the world at the same time. As it happened, I was some distance away, but I was looking at him when he abruptly slipped from his saddle, causing an immediate stir in the crowd as spectators scurried to get clear of him. He looked around him with his friendly blue eyes, and he smiled just a little, and he began to dance. How am I to picture out Kacharos's dance for you? There was nothing acrobatic or flamboyant about it, not in any way. It was more of a sliding walk, a rhythmic easing to and fro, such as serpents are said to employ to hypnotize their prey. Now and then he wheeled in a sudden circle. Now and then he paced swiftly forward or swiftly back. Once in a while he cast his arms wide or raised them above his head, or held them straight out before him, at once beckoning and begging. No more than that, never any more than that, to Kacharos's dancing. Often he clasped his hands behind him, and always he gazed only at the ground as he paced this way and that, looking neither like a wizard nor a dancer, but for all the world like a philosopher enmeshed in some profound question. Nor did he once raise his eyes to glance at the handsome couple performing with their little animals. I remember. I was there. And Jassy Belnarek, Jassy caught Chasse in mid-spring, how wrathfully the shukri hissed and chittered at her, outraged at the interruption, handed him to her puzzled husband, stepped down from the muddy, swaying plank stage, and walked into the suddenly silent crowd, which parted before her like water before a ship's bow. She was smiling very slightly, and her dark olive skin seemed lighted from within. The wizard Kacharos went on dancing, still never looking up as Jossie drew near, not until she stood before him, waiting his will. Back on the stage, Riho uttered a kind of soft, dazed bellow, dropped Shas and all the other shukris sporting on his shoulders and in and out of his pockets to the planks, and charged after his wife. His passage was as earnestly hindered by onlookers as Jossie's had been unchecked, for all were desperate to keep him from the power of the wizard. But he was a strong man in a rage, and he shrugged them aside and lumbered on. Kacharos was closing his long, graceful hands on the spellbound Jossie Belnarek to lift her to his saddle, just as Riho reached them. The big man struck the wizard's hands away from her and raised his own fist for a blow that would have shivered an anvil into splinters. But Kacharos turned toward him, and his feet moved in a different dance, quicker, sharper, the steps like knife thrusts now. Indeed, Riho doubled over, crumpling and silent, open-mouthed agony, just as though he had been stabbed. Jossie blinked, shook her head violently, and began to scream enough for the two of them. Spectators were backing away, as a mighty tide sweeps a beach clean, and the wizard Kacharos danced on. What would have happened? What vengeance he would have danced into being? Well, I can make just enough of a guess at it to be most grateful for the failings of an old man's imagination. There is, however, nothing wrong with my memory, which is why, 
All these years later, I yet cherish the look on his face when the shukri sprung up at him from the loose, open gorget of Jossie's dress and bit him on the nose. Ha! <laughs> you laugh now at the image in your mind. The renowned wizard, in the very act of leveling some dreadful curse, staggering backward with a furious little animal clenched to his nose. But you might not have laughed then. No one else did, I can assure you. Beyond a grunt, Kacharos made no sound. He gripped the shukri in both hands, squeezing it mercilessly, wringing it like a dishclout. The fearless creature, Shas's mate, Kili it was, opened its jaws in a hiss of pain, and then bit down again, this time sinking its teeth into the wizard's lower lip. Kacharos tore it free, spitting blood, and hurled it after the retreating crowd, which, by this time, included Riho Belnarak and his wife. The big man had swept Jossie up in his arms and run for it, with Killy scurrying a jump behind, faster than anyone would ever have thought he could move. His mind may indeed have worked in rather a measured fashion, but his instincts were sound. Kacharos did not follow. He had his nose, his lip, and his pride to nurse, and, far more vital than any of these, his revenge to consider. To want and to have had been the same thing to him all his life. What made this wanting somehow different was that it had been a very long time since anyone had denied him his desire, and, further, that, for no reason he could put a name to, he was now determined that Jossie Belnarek should desire him, that she should come to him of her own choice, utterly uncompelled by magic. Much better than merely destroying her husband, that would be. Oh, much, much better. He could already taste Riho's shame and dishonor in his bloody mouth. Jossie herself was a good while in understanding exactly what had happened to her. When she did finally shake free of Kacharos's summoning, she became at once infuriated and extremely frightened. I think she had more experience of wizards than Riho. At all events, she knew better than he how close both of them had come to annihilation. From that moment she was resolved to keep her family, Shukri's included, as clear of Kacharos as she could, at whatever cost, even if it meant abandoning a performance, or their home itself, at a moment's warning. She determined that neither she nor Riho would ever, ever again raise their eyes to meet those friendly blue eyes, not ever again. And Riho already knew, though they had not been married very long, what I have known all my life that Jossie Belnarek is an extremely determined woman. But, resolute and cunning as she was, Kacharos had been cunning for far longer than she had been alive, and stubborn courage is most often overmatched against malevolent old wisdom. Wanting what he wanted from her, he knew better than to dog her steps or haunt her hours as she so feared. Rather, he employed all his sly arts and twisty skills to her benefit, bestowing every sort of blessing upon her, if one may use such a word in connection with such a man, without once showing himself. Being the wizard he was, he danced up for her neither money nor jewels nor clothing, nor with anything else that she could have thrown back in his face. No, his offerings were all of sunshine and starlight— Kacharos was always a weathermaster, of perfect days, and the shukris in perfect health, performing for the love and pride of it, and gaping, cheering crowds, paying eagerly to see them. 
It galled him, I am sure of it, to think of Riho sharing this bounty with her. But he doubtless cheered himself with the thought that, however ignorant of its origin her loutish husband might be, Jossie Belnarek would know. And, of course, he was quite right. Jossie woke every morning to the sight of legendary creatures grazing in her garden, itself once a ragged, half-dead shambles for lack of care, now as radiant as a stained-glass window with new color every day. And she knew who had sent them. She drew great wonder, how not, from the vision of an immortal Kailash spreading its thunderous wings in her apple-tree to greet her. Wonder, but no joy, no more than she felt on the midnight when a blue-gray Liramaha looked into her eyes and lowered its horn and its impossibly soft muzzle into her hand. No joy in any of this, no matter how much she may have hungered to take joy, because she knew. Kacharos was bad to his toenails, evil to the roots of his hair, but he was not a fool. It is easy enough to follow his reasoning, even from this distance. If glorious miracles could not draw Jossie Belnarek to him, so be it, he would find something that would. And indeed, after a time, a new design awoke in him. He knew even less about women than most men do but he did understand that they often have surprising difficulty in rejecting ugliness outright. Why else have we all those tales of princesses and frogs? And piteous vulnerability they dare not refuse. Very well, he would approach Jossie, not as the all-conquering master he so obviously was, but as a beggar, a faltering supplicant, and helpless without her love. A wise friend might, perhaps, have counseled him otherwise, but Kacharos had no friends. So he proceeded to accost Jossie Belnarek regularly, most often in the woods, when she went there in search of blue dalda flowers, not the white, so often poisonous, which, brewed into a decoction, do wonders for a shukri's coat and digestion. Clad always in his shabbiest, most outworn garments, his eyes so doggedly downcast that he tended to trip over things, Kacharos would mumble his forlorn need of her, careful never to look directly at her, nor ever to move in any threatening way, any dancing way. It was a rare sight, and a curiously moving one. Or it would have been moving, if it had been even a little less patently artificial— of all the human emotions, the one hardest to counterfeit, so I have found anyway, is humility, and Kacharos had not even the smallest acquaintance with it. Jossie Belnarek made every effort, for her life and Riho's life, to keep from laughing. But on his fifth such visitation, when Kacharos spoke haltingly of his determination to retire into the mountains, if she would not have him, and become a Saleh, a holy hermit, then it was all suddenly too much for her. All fear and caution collapsed within her, and she laughed. She always had the most sharing sort of laugh, Jossie Belnarek did. There was never any cruelty in it, only delight and invitation. Ah, and here we are once more, back at my own front door, that always sticks so in wet weather. Come in, do, I'll put the kettle on. What? Bide, bide a little. We will come to that. No living person had ever laughed at the wizard Kacharos. For a moment he stared at the young woman before him, now stricken with amusement, 
not even so much at his hypocrisy, but at his utter gracelessness. And his blue eyes burned brighter and brighter, until they were actually white as ashes with fury. Yet he never lifted a hand, nor spoke a word to her, nor did he dance a single terrible step toward her destruction. He simply turned and walked away. When your life is all-taking, what need to learn courtship? Kacharos's passion for Jossi Belnarek deepened and darkened with every sleepless night, but it did not keep him from understanding that neither beneficence nor meek wistfulness would win her honestly. Power would have to do, after all. And I think that for the only time in that bad life, Kacharos may truly have regretted the necessity of forcing his will on another person. The moment can't have lasted long, but I think further that it may have been the closest Kacharos ever came to knowing love. But what he knew he turned to an ill purpose, as you might imagine. Jassi Belnarek plainly had no more fear of him, nor for herself, but for someone who mattered to her more than her own life. If sacrificing herself for her husband's sake were to prove the last thing that Jossie ever did willingly for her new master, well, then, so be it, however bitter the taste to Kacharos. Pride had always been his substitute for honor, but his pride was so long gone from him that he could barely recall the feel of it. And so be that, too. I have known several wizards in my life who would have been capable of doing what Kacharos did to Riho Belnarak. I have never known another who would have done it. Jossie and Riho had lain down in long, slow love the night before, and Jossie, reluctant to let herself rouse fully in the morning, only came completely awake when she embraced her husband, welcoming the new day, and immediately realized that his soul was gone in the night. A man might take longer, I think. I could be wrong about this. But although Riho responded to Jossie's caress with a smile and a languorous arching of his back, she knew at once, beyond any question, that she might as well have been petting or grooming a shukri. His eyes were peacefully empty, just as a shukri's eyes go when you scratch its stomach. His tenderly ugly face reflected her not at all. There was no trace of Riho in a single hair or scar of the familiar, generous body lying so close beside her. I cannot tell you with any sureness that she lay still for a while, still holding the beloved shell of her husband as sweetly as always. But I knew her, and I believe she did. By and by, however, she arose and briskly dressed herself, not in the worn truce and tunic she wore for her daily work with the Shukris, but in the dark green Hedao-woven gown that Riho had ordered all the way from Chun for her last birthday. It was the only such garment she had. With it, she put on her best shoes, the silver-scaled ones he teasingly called her Queen's Coming to Dinner pair, and her finest shawl, which had belonged to her mother and was the color of the restless sea off Cape Dali. Then she kissed Riho goodbye. He smiled pleasantly at her again, and she went to say farewell to the Shukris, calling each by name and speaking a few words of affectionate memory to each in turn. And then she walked away from her house, down the stone-flagged path into the woods, where she knew the wizard Kacharos would be waiting for her on his black horse, 
and she never looked back. No man was present to hear the words they spoke to one another when they met in a certain clearing, and such creatures as did overhear were hardly of a sort to draw their understanding from language. But it was surely a striking confrontation under the trees, for Kacharis was a handsome man, as I said at the beginning, strongly made and of a commanding presence, while little Jassi Belnarik, with her white hair and her deep dawn-gray gaze, carried herself more royally than any queen. They faced each other in silence for a time, before Jossie said, "'Give my man back his soul.' And Kacharos responded, "'Give me back mine,' and waited calmly for the answer, long in coming, surely, but the only one it could have been. "'When you have restored my husband, I will go away with you.' Kacharos knew everything about Jossie Belnarek, everything, at least, except the part that always escapes those possessed by such wanting, and he certainly knew that she was one who kept her word. Nevertheless, he was never a whit more gracious in victory than in defeat, and he bargained with her even at such a moment. He said, Up then, here, in the saddle before me. Only then will I credit your submission and loose your husband's soul to him. And Jassy yielded. I know this. She came straight to the black horse, never hesitating, and never once looking back at the cherished life she was leaving forever. Had she done so? Had she stolen a last glance over her shoulder as she mounted Kacharos's horse? She would have seen her shukris, every one of them, gathered at the edge of the clearing. They sat watching, all on their hind legs, bracing themselves with their tails— as shukris will do when something catches their curiosity, and their small jeweled eyes were burning red as wayward stars. The tamest shukri is bone-wild, as I've said, and a group of them can be quite frightening, especially when they are completely silent, not hissing or chittering. Because of a certain thing shukris can do together when their wills are joined— there is nothing in this thing of fangs or blood or torn-out throats. Most often it is spoken of as a myth, a legend, a matter of folklore. There cannot be more than three or four people alive who have seen it done. I am one of them. I know exactly what happened when Jossie and Rehel Belnarek's shukris saw their mistress about to be carried off by the wizard Kacharos. I can see as I see you now, how they drew close together, so close, in fact, that in the lingering morning mist you might have thought them only one great animal stretching up and crouching to spring. You might even have imagined that one beast actually speaking one fierce word, a word to scrape all along your bones until your flesh itself rebelled, yearning desperately, desperately to shake free of them. And so it happened. I know this. I was the Shukri who spoke that word. No, no, you can go on sipping your tea. It's wretched stuff, I know. I apologize for it. I have never had the knack for tea. No, I am neither mad nor likely to leap at your throat, I promise you. Once the change is made, it is made. There is no way for me ever to turn back into a Shukri again. Everything comes at a price, you see. 
It was Kacharos's moment of purest triumph, I suppose, to be at last holding her in surrender, his hands on her waist and the smell of her strange white hair in his nostrils. As he had sworn, and all wizards are bound to honor their pledges, for good or ill, he spoke the three words that freed Rehobelnarek's soul to hurry home to his body. A breath later, a blink later, a heartbeat, what perched on his saddle-bow, had thick white fur, a short straight tail, red eyes, round ears, and a rounded muzzle a-glitter with little sharp fangs. Those fangs raked Karcharos's wrist when he clutched frantically at the creature that had been Jossi Belnarek. Then the white shukri was on the ground and racing for the trees. Her companions closed around her as though to hide her from his sight, but he shut his eyes and saw her all the same, a tiny scampering brand blazing through both the darkness of the woods and the shadows of his own soul. Then she was gone from him, and he threw back his head and howled, and trees began to fall. If you should ever travel the barrens, you will meet any number of folk who will gladly show you, for a couple of coppers, of course, the place, the wood, where all this happened. You could easily find it yourself, though. There's no missing it, even for a stranger. The downed trees have never been replaced by so much as a sprig of new growth. They lie where they crashed to earth, blackened as though fire had swept over them, as is the ground itself. There is no life in that place, no life at all, not for more than a mile around. I once paced it out carefully to the point where one begins at last to see a few rabbits in the thin young brush, and to be grateful for weeds. That whole section of the wood has been gutted, leveled, raised to a void that folks say still echoes with the madness of Karcharos. For he went mad then, never doubt it, or he would never have done what he did when the white shukri slashed his wrist and fled away. Oh, never doubt that he went mad. The footprints will tell you. In the end, the most frightening thing is not the forest's devastation, not the cold shadows where there are no trees to cast them, not the overwhelming sense that you can actually touch the lifelessness. It is the footprints, scored so deeply into that hard, hard ground that not even a flood nor an earthquake will ever wash them away, burn them away. They are as plain as though he had stepped them off yesterday, those tracks left by the wizard Kacharos when he stalked that terrible dance floor long ago. You can see the smudged prints where he wheeled and spun, the furrows where he glided forward or back in one long stride, the triangular marks where he surely rose on the balls of his feet, his arms to the sky. And you can clearly follow the movement of the dance. Straight as a storm wind, straight toward what would have been the deep core of the wood before it fell. Follow it, sitting here far away with me. Follow now. Up high on one leg, you see him, do you not? The other lunging out, scornfully kicking the earth away beneath him like a hangman's ladder. But even a wizard's foot must touch ground soon or late, and so does this one leaving a small, four-toed print with claws. Then comes another, and another after that, and another, all bunched close together at first, as he finds his new equilibrium, then lengthening out into the long, flying bounds of a shukri with its prey in sight. He was gray, a darkish gray, 
with no trace of his red-blonde glory. I cannot say why that should have been. There were other footprints, too, that day. I made them. Barely visible, I'm sure they were, and doubtless gone soon, not having been danced into the deep flesh of the earth by a wizard so maddeningly cheated of his wicked heart's desire. They would likely have been difficult to read, even for a skilled tracker, since it took me far, far longer than it did Kocharos to learn the trick of balancing on two feet, after a lifetime on four. I hobble somewhat still, no disguising that. You have always been most kind about matching your steps to mine, and gracious enough neither to ask questions nor to take my arm. But this is nothing compared, compared to the way I lurched and crawled, tottered and stumbled and crawled again out of that torn, tormented wood. I, who had before only tumbled in air, whose own dance carried me flying between the hands of two humans who were mine, mine, as surely and always as all my flying family were mine. For Jossie and Riho Belnarek, I crawled, and crawl now, here with you. No, until it happened, I had no idea that I would be the one chosen to make the exchange. We... Oh, yes, I still say we, even now. We never know how the choice happens, or on whom it will fall. What we do know is that it is our choice, always, made together. Made out of... love? We have no such word, we Shukris, but we know that nothing is one without sacrifice. One Shukri more, one human more. A trade, a balance. So it must be, so the magic runs. Our magic. But if any wizard but Kacharos has ever worked such a shape-shifting upon himself, I know nothing of it. I was looking straight at him when he changed, as my new form closed over me, and I will swear on my deathbed that he never cared for a moment whether the transformation was reversible or not. Not for a moment. Kacharos was never seen or heard of again. Not in the barrens, anyway. I can vouch for that. Oh, there were rumored sightings, legends, as there still are to this day, but they have always proved false. In a strange way, I rather miss him, I do. He was an evil man who took pleasure and nourishment from his evil, but he was ours, he was of the barons, do you understand? There is an old saying that nothing ever came out of the northern barons but weak cattle and weaker ale. Kacharos was an exception. We should not be proud of him, but there you are. As for Jossi Belnarek, well, now that is possibly another story. Riho lives still, you know, and still trains and performs with his famous Shukris, old as he is. He has never remarried, and for all his undoubted sorrow at the disappearance of his wife, for all these years there has always been an... an air about him. The sense of a secret smile, as though he were holding something deep and near that might interest you if you learned it. And so, inevitably, the other rumors began to take root and sprout up and grow. It is said everywhere, by people unborn when this tale took place, that Jossie Belnarek still comes to her husband every month, under the full moon, when she is somehow able, or allowed, to take her human form for that little time. 
and it is believed also that the grey shukri, that is the wizard Kacharos, still hunts the white shukri through the forest, night and day, never capturing her, nor even drawing close enough to catch sight of her, but never losing her scent, never giving up. Do I believe the stories myself? No, none of them, not at all. Oh, yes, oh, yes, with all my heart. And if you cannot understand how I can hold both the dream and the doubt in that same heart, well, it is very nearly a human heart, after all. But I wish it so, because I was there, and it should be so. I was there, as surely as one day soon I will not be here. I was there, and I saw them, and I knew them, and what I lost I gave freely, and it should be so. It should be so. After the story, the feedback. Despite sound quality issues, a lot of listeners enjoyed episode number 10, Magic in a Certain Slant of Light by Deborah Coates. On the blog, commenter Jake complained that there was no fantasy in it, and Wilson Fowley replied, I think the magic Jake was looking for, is that what you mean by fantasy, Jake, was Nora's prescience. Outside of that, no, there wasn't much, but that didn't bother me. I was a little surprised that the dog didn't somehow talk, though. On the board, Void Munashi said, I found the story to be enjoyable, if not remarkable. It was a bittersweet story to me, showing Nora as the ultimate pessimist. She doesn't just think things will go badly, she knows they will. I liked her as a character, but I couldn't really care about any of the characters too much. Chivalry Bean said, It took me a while to like this one, but I did. At first I was disappointed that there weren't zeppelins flying around, but I started to enjoy the story a lot around 20 minutes into the podcast. A. James had a hard time with the story. I want to like it, he said, as there is a lot to like. Nora's character grew on me. I loved the premonitions, or whatever they are, the image of the soda bottle Zeppelin, all great stuff as far as I'm concerned. And yet I am left with the impression that this story conveys a message that science is good for knowing certain things, but misses the point of life, the magic of life, if you will. In other words, science and magic are two separate paths, and science is the wrong path. The discussion also spawned a survey asking the immortal question, talking dog or Zeppelin? Let us know by visiting forum.escapeartists.info. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else in our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartists.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Jose Bergamin said, There are those who dance to the rhythm that is played to them, those who only dance to their own rhythm, and those who don't dance at all. <laughs>